Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. I'd love for you to join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning. Uh, we'll read from that passage in just a, just a moment. Uh, as most of you probably know, last week, uh, Donette and I were not here. We were at a marriage uh, retreat in Little Rock, Weekend to Remember, put on by Family Life, uh, and uh, we, had a, we had a great time together. And uh, I say that to say one of the reasons, one of the reasons that we went is in 25-plus uh, years of marriage, we've only been to two marriage retreats that I've not taught. Uh, and, you know, I kind of ran out of material. And so I thought, well, uh, so it was really good for she and I to be able to, uh, to spend that time together and just kind of, you know, just lean into one another. And I appreciate the opportunity to be able to do that. I also wanted to go uh, because that I, I feel like investing in relationships, specifically marriages, uh, we know, you know, God values those so highly as the first institution that He created uh, in in with humanity, uh, and they're and they're for it's for our good uh, that the church ought to also have a high value of that relationship as well. And so, I wanted to kind of see what was there that we might be able to uh, to do as a church. And so, uh, keep your ears open because uh, it was it was beneficial uh, for certain. Uh, we're going to uh, to start. Um, putting some some feelers out there for for you if you're interested in a marriage retreat, uh, that's good. Maybe we'll all go together. Uh, there's one in Branson the first weekend of April, and so uh, mark your calendars if you'd like to do that. It's a tremendous time, and it'd be good to be able to go with other brothers and sisters that we worship with each week too. So uh, you go ahead and put that on your calendar if you'd like. I think it's it's really it's a really weird time for a marriage retreat. April Fool's Day is the day it starts. Uh, uh, through through the Sunday afternoon, but I appreciate uh, appreciate the opportunity to be able to go and to to kind of recharge. And Second um, Corinthians chapter one verse twenty four is where I'm going to start reading from today. But you can keep. I mean, you write that down if you'd like. But what Paul says to church to the church at Corinth there is not that we lorded lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. And to me, that's sort of the purpose of communal relationships. Um, Paul is speaking here as an apostle and as the founder of the church that as the, as the leader and the teacher of this church, it is his responsibility to work with you for your joy. And I feel like that is a, that is a mission statement sort of, as, of mine when, and Paul says that, uh, that pastors are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To me, it's the same thing, is to, to work with you for your joy. He also told the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 1, verse 25, he says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. So here Paul calls it the joy of faith. Faith isn't a drudgery, and faith isn't a burden. Faith is joy. It's where we find joy, the expression of joy. And the church is to uh, exist, to be able to build one another up so that we may experience collective joy, but also individual joy. 
And so today, that's really the bulk of what I want to, to share and to talk about. Uh, I'm, I am convinced that if there was one thing in the world that we could possibly want that would satisfy us, it would be peace, and peace produces joy in our life. We need peace because we, we crave joy. And in a fallen world, the world is always capable. Satan always produces an artificial, a substitute for all of God's gifts. But it's spiritual maturity that helps us to more clearly identify the artificial from the real thing. And, and we're able to, to recognize what, what Satan offers as temporary and what God offers as, as real and eternal. So often, though, the world's substitute, Satan's counterfeit, satisfies us enough. And so once we can experience enough, we kind of put it on coast. We settle for a, a joy that is circumstantial. It puts a smile on our face and it gives us our way in the moment. But what that does is it creates a pathway to consumerism and it creates a pathway to selfishness. And we love the temporary. We become satisfied with the temporary joy so that we begin to pursue the temporary joy. And we begin to be driven by it. And while we have become consumers of it, it has consumed us. Only we don't know it. So how do you know if you're settling for the joy substitute? I believe that Paul tells us that there's, in fact, many times, that there's a very, very clear test that we can run to see if we're settling for a joy substitute. And that is, you look at the fruit of the joy. You look at what it produces. You can look really easily and see, primarily, in the act of giving. Look at how much you are giving. And I'm not talking about financially, although that is incredibly important. In fact, if, if you show me where you are giving, and I, this is not an advertisement or a commercial, but if you show me where you're giving financially, I'll show you what's truly important in your life. It's a, it's a real clear-cut proof. And so what you put your money on is where you've already put your heart on. But I'm not talking about money today because money then is the byproduct I'm talking about if we get our hearts right when it comes to joy and the joy of giving, and we don't have to worry about every area of our, of our lives. So your heart as a giver tells you how much you view or what God is truly doing in your life, how you value what God is truly doing in your life. Again, anytime we hear the idea of giving, we think of money, but I'd like for you to just set that aside as a proof. What I'm talking about is your time and your energy, your, your, yourself, who you, who you really are, giving of yourself to one another. You know, you can be a good giver financially, but not be a giver of yourself. It's super easy to write checks if you have it. Sometimes it's easy to write checks when you don't. It's a whole lot easier to do that than it is to actually give of yourself to one another. 
But just like peace, you remember when Jesus said this to the disciples, he said, my peace I leave with you, not the peace that the world gives do I give, but my peace. So we know that there is a peace that the world offers. There's also a peace that God, that Jesus offers. He is the prince of peace himself. And so just like peace, there is a partial peace within us, peace for a moment, but not necessarily eternal peace, that there is also an artificial joy and there is a pure joy. There is a joy that kind of, kind of exists in you, but there's also a joy that cannot be experienced by you apart from Jesus Christ. So the world's promises produce temporary joy. And then you have to keep coming back to the world's false promises of joy. You had to keep taking a hit off of the world's promises because every circumstance, every issue, every, every uh, decision, every thought has to keep coming back and taking a hit because you need, that, you need that hit off of that to be able to feel and to be able to breathe. And I'm telling you, that's the world I feel like we're living in right now is because we're, we're hoping that when we get our way, whatever that way is, because we all don't agree on that, that we'll finally find Joy in living again. And it does not work that way. True joy is outside of the circumstances. Heaven's promises produce permanent joy. In fact, it is a proof of salvation. And it is a proof of the residing work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's, it's a fruit that He produces in you as you are living in Him. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, these words have come to you from me so that your, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You see, there's already a partial joy in you, but full joy is not possible without the words and promises of Jesus Christ. See, this, little, this little, little element of substituted joy that resides in us is always in a deficit and, we have, and, and is completely dependent upon the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And Jesus also said in John 16, 24, it says, Until now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy, what? May be full. You see, when you receive the promises of Jesus, that's where you experience joy in the full. The only way to true and lasting joy is through the life of the life himself. Jesus is the true source of joy. He has it, he is it, and he pours it through you. And this is how you stay full of joy because he is making a joy stream out of you. As it flows out of you, it is carving a path that creates life for others around you. When you stop the stream of what God is doing, you're going to clog up the gift of joy. So you have the word of God, Jesus says, produces the work of God. And when you commit to the work of God, you will experience the ongoing ways of God. 
The word produces the work, and the work leads to the ways. And these ways produce joy and peace and ultimately hope for us. Not in and out. Not receiving in and out. This is exhausting of having to work always to have some joy to give away. But when you are open and you are in his presence and you are unclogged, it is like this constant source of joy. This is the joy that is full in you. It's not like, okay, he's getting a little bit empty. I need to give him a little more joy. Well, you know what? He's been praying for this for months. And so now let me, you know, he's getting a little empty. Let me tap him off. No, this is, not, this is not joy in the full. Joy in the full is constantly filled because you are always open. Your joy isn't based, your happiness may be based on circumstances, but your joy is based on the future. Your, your, your confidence in the work of God. So not in and out, but through. Life in you becomes life in others. Joy in you becomes joy in others. By receiving Jesus, you become a giver. Listen, if you have received Jesus, you are a giver. And if you're not giving, then you are not living in the life of Christ. This would explain a lot about our current temperament and mood when we don't get our way, when we're not satisfied, we're not confident. Well, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I said, what in the world? I thought I forgot about that part. So Paul begins, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, remember we talked about this in around uh, Acts 17 when, when Paul was shoved, shoved out of the city and then from city to city and he's on, this, he's on this march because of all the persecution that's taken place. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as, as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves." Because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who called you into his own kingdom and glory. Well, the, the natural self, who we are by nature, has this, this pursuit of getting. 
That comes very natural to us. And though we are new in Christ, we still have to do war with the old self, who we used to be that we're still so tied to. Now, before we were resurrected in Christ in our spirit, we were a slave to this flesh. We, we had to pursue what it said to pursue. But now that we are alive in Christ, we can second, we can think again. Uh, and we can, we can drive those fleshly desires through the Spirit. And so that's what Paul is saying here. Most people pursue a life of getting. But Jesus, just like almost everything else in human nature, he turns that upside down and makes our Christian life not about getting, but about giving. And again, I'm not talking about money only. I'm talking about the, the idea of living open-handed, living generously with all that we are, all that we say, all that we do. And we obviously need people. We need relationships. We need the ministry of the saints in our lives from time to time. And it is a very prideful thing to act like we don't need each other from time to time because we absolutely do. In fact, a church should be two things simultaneously, a place to have needs met and a place to meet one another's needs. And I am convinced that the church who is humble enough to do both at the same time is a place where the spirit of God resides in power, where we truly can not be a, a people who worship together, but a people who just melt into each other. And I know for some, get super anxious about the idea of having to learn how to trust, but what Paul says, it is a byproduct of being new in the Spirit. Learning how to trust, learning how to risk, these sorts of things are very important. Both of these require humility, to give and to get, to need collectively and to give collectively. But today, I'm talking about the giving. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, he said, remember the words of Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, Jesus did not say it is blessed, you're blessed to give and not receive, but there is a blessing in receiving. There is a blessing in receiving, but it is more blessed, doubly blessed to give than to receive. You are more blessed, more graced, happier, more deeply satisfied, more rich, more solid. Joy is not found in gaining true joy. Heaven's joy is found in giving. Especially when it comes to giving yourself and all you have to the body. And listen, I am a huge fan of the church. Huge. And I believe the church is so much more important in the life of a believer than we recognize. But we live in a day where it has become undervalued. And people go from church to church to church to church, and they never commit themselves to brothers and sisters. I want us as a church to be a place where we are truly family and it's not just something we say, that we treat each other like family and we love like family and we ask like family and we give like family with our resources, with our time and with our lives. This is who we are as Christians. 
The moment that you became a Christian, you received the nature of Jesus who has the nature of the Father who is the original giver. You are a giver by nature. And you, when you become a Christian, you receive the Creator's nature. The life giver himself enters into you. Old things pass away and all things become new. So giving then is a part of of your nature, your essence, your identity. Listen to what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter four. He said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him, that's, that's the Christian life, will never be thirsty again. You see this, this you never be thirsty again because it's full all the time, right? You just constantly are at the tap. The water that I will give him will become in him. Not himself, but the water in him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, often in the scripture, as you, many of you will remember, when you see the water, you can just kind of, that's, that's the word of God almost all the time. So the water represents the word of God. What John 1 tells us is that the word is Jesus and Jesus is, is God. Jesus is the living word and the scripture is the written word. One interprets the other. If you want to know what scripture is trying to say, look at the life of Jesus. And you want to know why Jesus is doing what he's doing? Interpret it through the word of God. The, this is the word of God. If you receive the resurrection, if you receive the life of God, you become ground zero as a fountain of the word of God. And out of you comes the written and the living word of God. The life of Jesus becomes like, a, it's like you're like a fountain. And as this fountain is producing this constant stream of life, it is carving out streams of life into others. Over and over we find that that's what Jesus promises. In fact, he says this in John 7, 38. He says, out of his heart, those who follow him, will flow rivers of living water. So you are a, you are a spring of life. You are a spring of joy. So it's not only about what flows into you, though that's the question that we often ask. Just continue to be patient for a moment. We're getting to the text, all right? It's not about what flows into you. It's about what flows out of you. That's how you can really tell if what is flowing into you is real or not by evaluating what's coming out. What flows out is the litmus test of what's truly flowing in. And, and, so, and so for a moment, just take a moment and ask yourself, is, is what coming out of me, is it, is it carving a stream into the life of others? Is it producing joy? Is it producing love? Is it, is it ex expanding the kingdom of God on earth? Or am I backed up? Am I clogged? Am I using the benefits of God only for myself? You see, free flowing water becomes clear. Backed up water becomes stagnant. And that's how you can tell. 
So these 12 verses are Paul's defense of himself. Remember, Paul seems to have been accused of, of maybe in his absence now, there's enough time, enough division, enough chaos that happens uh, regarding his intention and his commitment to the gospel and to God's people at Thessalonica. Maybe Paul was, uh, while he was here, maybe he was being selfish. Maybe he was uh, looking to, maybe he's just making a living. Maybe he's trying to manipulate us into something. Maybe he's seeking some glory for himself. Maybe we're just, you know, check marks in his, in his Bible. Maybe Paul was selfish and only seeking glory. But look at the way that Paul defends himself, and that's what we're going to do today. Reminding them of what they already knew about the way that, that, that he had treated them. And how he gave himself to them. So I want us to go back now to the text and I want us just to pull a few things out. You'll notice that in verses 1, 2, 5, 9, 10, and 11 of these 12 verses that Paul uses the word, you know, you remember, or you are witness. Now this is important because six times in 12 verses, Paul is telling them that they remember, that they know, that they need to go back and stake claim in what they already know. When your muscle memory is based upon the moment that you're in, you're going to have a really hard time seeing the big picture. And that's, I'm telling you, that is a huge trick and a huge lie from Satan himself is to fixate you on the moment rather than the big picture. This is why anxiety and depression is running so rampant. I'm telling you, and I don't want to get into it too much today, and I'm a sympathizer for sure, but I, and I I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm telling you, we, as your pastor, I want to encourage you to spend as much time in the presence of God as you possibly can because mental health is at an all-time high or low, depending on which way you see that. And one of the things that Satan will tell you is that you're the only one being affected by it. And I'm telling you, you are not. Everybody's in their own head and everybody's trying to figure out this, that, or the other and holding off into the people that agree with them about this issue and then have to roll out of that one because these people don't agree about that issue. And it seems like we're just bouncing around and we can't trust anybody. Everybody wants to give their strong opinions, but nobody wants to have to deal with having to... Well, anyway, I won't get into all of that. But my point is to say this. The, the way to cure mental health issues, anxiety, depression, and isolation, and abandonment, and all of the wounds that are created from that, is to find joy in Jesus Christ. So the more time you can spend in the Word of God, the people of God, and the Spirit of God, you will do well. Because the world needs you to be a fountain of joy-producing life. It's the one thing that sets us apart from the rest of the world. And it's easy for the church to kick in the sand and be upset about these days and take our place in society as another organization trying to figure out how to keep the doors open. But let me tell you what, Jesus Christ created these days for the church to look more different than the world. These are our days to create a revival so that those who are broken and wounded and don't have peace and don't have joy can look at a family and say, I want that. God, make us different. I 
we can only see that little slice of life, little slice of circumstance because our, our, our substitute joy has taught us to look at that little slice instead of panning out to see the whole. Oh, remembering is so important. That's why Paul keeps driving them back. Oh, you know, you remember, you were witness. You, because in their moment, oh, Paul is a glory hound. Oh, what Paul was doing. And so Paul is driving them back to what they know. It's so important. Remembering is so important because that's where we stake our faith. And it's not until we know and remember. Remember, going back and establishing faith is the only way that we can look forward with hope. And once we are able to claim hope and know the purpose by which we live, that we can be freed to love in our present. And the evidence of love is giving and manifesting the fruit of the Spirit and producing that joy and that peace. You know, we have hope. We can drive out fear in the moment and we can love instead. And it's in the loving and the giving that we find joy, full joy. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that we believe, and I, I'm not, you know, I, there's anomalies to this, but, but we feel like if, if we were just valued more, appreciated more, known more, seen more, that we would have joy. I mean, that's what we want. We all want to be valued and accepted. And I can tell you, that's what the world claims. That's why we should be doing this with everyone, is accepting everyone, tolerating everyone, graces for everyone, because that's how people are going to find joy. But the Scripture says, no, that's not the way you find joy. The way you find joy is valuing other people, lifting other people, serving other people, caring for other people. That's how you know that it's flowing through you. Because I know who I am in Jesus. I'm satisfied who I am in Jesus. I'm content with what Jesus says about me. Everybody wants to walk into a room and hear everybody else call their name. But the truth of the matter is, we who are already in the room should be looking to call each other by name. And to value and to lift and to encourage and to sacrifice. And not to only give the message of the gospel, but our souls as well. In the Old Testament, God uses the word remember to his people 233 times. When they're looking at the Red Sea, remember. When they're looking at chaos and crisis remember 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 when they're fearful when they're worried about their culture when they're in some pagan nation remember 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 and when they go back and remember <sighs> take your eyes off the slice and pan out and see what God is truly doing in the new testament paul uses this word remember 21 times to god's people we often forget the big canvas, canvas that God is painting that we said yes to, by the way, and we only see one brush stroke. And we want to find joy in each brush stroke, brush stroke, but the joy comes from knowing the artist and trusting him, learning to trust him. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. When his joy comes into us and our joy is made full. You see, in 
anxiety and depression and any other sort of dysfunction that we walk in, myself included, comes from the act of only being able to see a portion. Sometimes that's chemical. I'm not talking about that. Sometimes it's circumstantial. I am talking about that. And in days where we becoming more and more isolated and more and more distanced between us. We started out socially distanced and now we are emotionally distanced. Looking too relationally distant. Oh, it's not good. It's not good. It's not going to be good. And I'm telling you, the world is going to continue to do this. But the church should be doing this. Because this is our bread and butter. This is a place where we really can trust each other and fall into each other, love each other. But that only happens when we learn how to lean in and to give not only the message. It's easy to come to church and give the message to each other. It's quite another thing to come and give ourselves to each other. The, the literal translation here, and some of, your, some of yours may say this, is to, to give our souls away. Look at verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. That's our own souls because you have become very dear to us. So the aim of the whole 12 verses, the whole paragraph, is to establish that Paul's coming was not in vain. For you yourselves know, brothers... That our coming was not in vain. So he says, yeah, take my character, set it aside. Look at what Jesus Christ has done in your life. Go back to chapter 1 and you will see in verse 6, they had received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You know, take myself aside. Look what the gospel that I presented to you produced in you. Look at what you are becoming. Look at verse uh, nine, and they had turned from idols to serve the living God. Look at the proof of what God has already done in your life. My labor among you was not in vain. His critics were trying to undo all of this. And the way they were doing it was but not by contradicting his teaching, but they were attacking his character. They were accusing him of flattery and greed and glory hounding. And if they can succeed, then Paul came in vain. He came for himself. So his aim was to remind them not of his teaching, but his actions, specifically his open and sacrificial self-giving. You see, giving and sacrifice, sacrificing of self is supernatural. It's proof of a relationship with Jesus. He is God, but he gives himself to us. And as we model Jesus, we give ourselves as well. And that's where we find joy because we're able to walk in hope. So this idea of giving our soul, you know, the, the scripture talks about the trichotomy of man, body, mind, and soul, and spirit. And our spirit is made alive in Christ. The Holy Spirit of God it lives in us and we become alive. And again, old things pass away. We begin to walk in the spirit instead of the flesh. And we live in the spirit instead of the flesh. The flesh only wants to pursue itself and only wants to live in the circumstance of happiness. And the spirit is already satisfied in Jesus and already has his joy maybe full. But right there in the middle, that emotional part of us, that's the word soul. 
right? That's the word. That's, that's where we make decisions. That's where our ambition lives. That's where our desires live. And what Paul is saying is the real me, the me that is like human, but also knows better, the part of me that, this is like Romans chapter 7, the things that I don't want to do, I do. The things that I do want to do, I don't do. This, this, very, this very battle that takes place every day, this battle for the mind, this mind that was a real man that struggles with real things, this is what I gave to you. I gave to you who I didn't just give you flattering words. I didn't just give you the best. I gave you who I really am. I gave you the raw Paul. I just made that up right here in this moment. Paul says, I wasn't just sharing a message. I didn't just have notes like Pastor Blaine does. I'm, I'm just sharing. I'm not giving you a message. I'm not giving you a sermon. I'm giving you myself. Not just words, but lives. Not just truths, hearts. Listen, I'm telling you, this is what will turn the River Valley upside down. When we just don't produce a message, but we give ourselves. This is why relating is so important. It's why bonfires and serve days are so important. It's why connect groups are so important. Because this can only take us so far. But this is eternal. I mean, it is, it is powerful. So Paul begins, I'm powerful, I'm influential, got a lot of say-so, I could have made a lot of demands on you, I didn't. I just gave you myself. Now Paul's going to list a couple of things, and I'm going to give them to you super quick. But I want us to listen to what Paul said, and I want us to overlay it on our own life. Paul said the first, the first way that he gave himself to them is he came at great risk. He knew the trouble that he was already in. Verse 2, but though we had already suffered, we've been shamefully treated at Philippi. But you know what we did? I came and I risked that and I gave myself to you. I didn't have to do that. But you know what? Sometimes in order to, to love people and to give yourself to people, it's going to come at a great risk. But you know what we're not willing to do because of previous wounds? I got hurt before last time I trusted people. Somebody hurt me before, and I'm just, I'm not sure we'll get that close to people anymore. Church people are the worst, and you know what? Probably. But where there's great risk, there's great reward. So you see, risking relationships and risking giving yourself away, that's not really about personality. That's about faith. That's about being obedient. That's about getting to know people. It's going to be impossible to get to know people if you don't know their name. We can't just be in a room with each other. We've got to risk some things. And you know what? I've been hurt. But you know what? I'm called to love through the hurt, to, to settle, to settle things, to renew things, to, to have life spoken into things. That's what a church does. It continues to go back to the resurrection and find more life. We can't hold ourselves off. Faith is not a place to be safe. 
Faith is a place to be obedient, knowing that the Spirit is going to take care of us. It's a risky place. And some people have been abused relationally, and they want to keep distance for fear. They fear vulnerability because it might expose the real them. But you know what? I am convinced that that faith requires risk. The first place I risk is trusting Jesus Christ with my eternity. Out of that relationship comes my ability to trust my wife with everything that I am. And that's in the safety of my own home. And I can be vulnerable with her because I know that she loves me because she made a vow to love me. And, and I made a vow to love her. And so learning how to express the love of God in my life is best found in my, well, I don't have to risk too much to love her, to be quite honest. It's easy. In our home, it's always been easy to love because we work to manifest what we are learning from him in our home. Our home is not a safe place. It's a place where we've had to say, I'm sorry. It's a place where we've had to do what the scripture says to do. This, this guy that stands right here, it's the same guy that sits in my recliner. And I'm, not, I'm just saying what Paul would say. I am giving my family my real self. It's who I am. And, and my family gives me the real self. That's who they are. I know them and I love them through it and they love me through it. It doesn't take much risk to love there. And when I come here, you know what? It requires more risk. Some of us, I don't know that great, but I know what you say you are. And I know who you say you love and I know what you say you want. And so while it requires risk, it shouldn't require that much. I can trust a little more because I know that you have confess Jesus Christ as your Savior. So I might risk a little more than I do in my home, but when I'm at church, I'm practicing greater risk. But some people don't even want to practice at church, and they want to have us to think that they can minister out there with even greater risk, but bypass the church. Let me tell you something. You prepare for that world by coming here and loving here, and serving here, and being one here, and being family here. That's the way the Scripture calls us to obedience. My first risk is with Jesus. Boy, I've learned there's not much risk there at all. My second risk is in my home, and it's becoming a place of less and less risk. And church should be a place where we find the fulfillment of that, and we are practicing risking and loving and giving and serving because we need to bind our arms together so that when we go out there, we're not alone. Because out there requires a lot of risk. Out there is going to require how to deal with rejection. And let me tell you something. We, whatever it is that you feel God has called you to do, he has called you to extend his kingdom first and foremost. Whatever resources he has given you is to flow out of you out there. That's why we need each other as a family out there as much as we need each other in this room. Sometimes things, people think that they get, watch this, this is what Jesus does. Okay, I, I, I want to get. I've become selfish, I'm a consumer, and I want to get. And I think that by getting, it's just going to come into myself. But what we learn from watching Scripture, and certainly Paul, is that you don't, what, whatever it is that you hope to get that's eternal, the getting comes after the giving. You know, we want to receive things, but you don't receive the eternal until you give them away. So there's a lot of people in here who've got a lot of stuff, but it becomes eternal 
when you live open-handed. Secondly, he didn't mislead them. And, and this is, this is a, a little bit obscure in the text. Verse 3 says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity. Every other time Paul uses this word, he's talking about it sexually. So there may have been some things that the church itself would have known about or understood from this phrase. Maybe some personal opportunities that Paul had refused and the church knew about it. But for our point, what Paul is saying is he gave them the truth and he kept himself pure sexually among them. Paul had the opportunity, but did never express it in any way that, that giving, that life in Christ was about giving, not receiving. And they know that. He did not abuse any opportunity among them. He did not take any advantage of any benefits. His modeling, he was modeling the truth, and that was his goal. Verse 4, he says, We speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. And then again in verse 6, he says, Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Paul said, I didn't say what you wanted to hear. How, how would you claim that I was there selfishly? You, don't you remember the thing, the, the kickback that you were giving me about the things I was teaching you? I wasn't trying to please you. Man-pleasing makes people into phony second-handers. It creates an incredible insecurity. And you start thinking, all right, I'm about to go into this group. What do they want to hear me say? I know a lot of preachers who do that. They go in, they go in and they start preaching and they, they hear that first amen and that third amen and they start saying, okay, I know what these people need to hear. And they just start saying those things over and over and over and then he feels good about it and they feel good about it at the end of it. Not one thing was said. Just a lot of man-pleasing. What they want most is not the gospel. What they want most is approval from people. And Paul said, that's not what I wanted. Paul's going to have nothing to do with that. And I hope you won't either. We need to be very careful that what we reflect is the light of Jesus Christ and not ourselves. So when we're dealing with others, we should be able just to relax in Jesus, right? Let me think about that. I just think about being able just to be just to be able to give our soul away and not worry about judgment, not worry about criticism. Just be who you are. And the best way to be who you are is to always be who you are. Don't live in compartments. Well, when I'm with these people, I've got to be like that. When I'm with these people, I've got to be like that. Let me, let me tell you something. It's not freeing. I mean, everywhere you go, you've got to wear some kind of mask or a partial mask. When you're around people, if you can't relax, it's probably because you're trying to hide something. Paul said, I didn't flatter or position myself for money either. Verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. God knows that I didn't come for money. In fact, verse 9, he says, you remember labor, labor and toil? We worked day and night. I, all day long I was preaching. All day long I was ministering to you. And then at night I was going to work so that I could afford tomorrow's food. I don't know if that's exactly what he is saying, but what he is saying is I did everything I did not to be a burden to you. I didn't take anything from you. I didn't want stuff from you. I wanted stuff for you. I wasn't flattering you. I wasn't trying to position myself so that I could gain some offering from you. He wasn't after their money. He was after their souls. Verses 6 through 8, we've already talked about those, but... He exchanged a relationship of power for a relationship of affection. He even said, like, like mother-like, I was, had tender affection for you. And I opened my heart 
to you. And I had, the, I had the ability to lord it over you. I had the ability to demand some things, but I didn't. I became like a mom. Nobody's more sacrificial than mom. Because I want stuff for you. I want you nurtured like a child. The church isn't about authority. The church is about oneness. It's never about authority. It's about serving one another and giving our souls to each other. Never too high to give, never too low to give. Giving is not about status. It's about revealing Jesus to one another. Verse 10, you are witness and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. Paul is telling, he's not saying that he was sinless. What he is saying is that while I was among you, I honored God. I treated people right. We gave no one a legitimate reason to blame us for any behavior. We lived above reproach. What a beautiful thing to go into a bunch of strangers and be able to say, you know that you didn't see anything error in my life. When we can be good and real at the same time. When we're not living double lives. Lastly, verse 11 you know, verse 1, he calls them brothers. Verse 7, he calls himself a mother to them as a nurturing mother. Now in verse 11, he says, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk worthy in the manner of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Like a dad, I spoke truths to you that you could understand how you are to walk in Jesus and to establish a legacy in his kingdom. Paul says, I'm not the legacy. I didn't point to myself as the legacy. I pointed you to the true Father, not for my glory, but for the glory of God. And I, and I, I believe that if we were to have to defend, we should take these things that Paul said and recognize our calling to give of ourselves to one another. This doesn't mean it's easy. doesn't mean that it's not risky. But it means it's not selfish. It's not consumer-driven. But to get to know each other and live communally together, to be able to take that community and to take it out into a desperate, broken world, it's powerful. We are called to do it. To take a risk in sharing our soul. To put away all deceit and exploitation. To renounce man-pleasing. To be done with manipulation. To, to not take advantage of personal opportunities, to feel mother-like and tender toward one another, to be holy, righteous, and blameless, and to feel like a father and want the best for one another so that we can help each other walk into a God-centered kingdom. Truth of the matter is, I think most people, though, are like, you know what, I really don't have anything to give. Nobody will miss me if I'm not in the room. Nobody knows my name. And that sounds very humble. It's not. It's prideful. You are called to give. And you have something to give. You have Jesus in you. Just like we started in the verse that we read this morning. You are like a unique fingerprint. And needs to be added to the hand that we are. 
the, the, the composite of the Holy Spirit, the things that he can teach you, the things that he can impress upon you, the, the, the gifts that you have, the fruit that you share, these things thrown into the pot with everyone as each one of us has been given. We give to one another. These things are explosive when you begin to live communally, relationally with each other. And now there's going to take a risk. But it's what proves that we have the nature of Jesus Christ. So as we close this morning, I want to ask you, what is it? What is it that you can immediately say, well, here's why I don't want to be around people. (laughs) I have social anxiety disorder. I have people are weird disorder. I have people think I'm weird disorder. Whatever, whatever it is, you know, I want us this morning just to say whatever it is that, and it may be, it may be, you may think that it's justified, but whatever it is, whatever it is, maybe it's a wound. Maybe it's I'll never be treated like that again. Maybe it's a, I don't know if I can trust people. I certainly don't want my secrets out. I'm not asking you to share secrets. I'm not asking you to confess anything. I'm asking you to learn to trust, and I'm also asking you to be a people that's trustworthy. People that care like a mother, teach like a father, and love and guide as brothers. I'm going to ask you to stand, if you would, this morning. And there may be this morning a relationship, maybe not in the room, but there may be a relationship that keeps you away from other relationships. There may, need somebody, there may be somebody that you need to say, forgive me. There needs to be, there may be somebody that you need to say, I forgive you. We need to let go and we need to live open-handed because God has established us in these days for that to be able to give ourselves away. Lord, this morning as we, as we come to the end of this time together, I pray that you would uh, teach us that your spirit would guide us, help us to understand as Paul is, is trying to defend the reality. Help us not to get fixated on our circumstances. Help us to be able to walk in pure joy. Help us to be able to walk in hope. Help us to be able to not just have that for ourselves so that we can feel better, but help us to be a spring of water. Help that to just carve out streams of life everywhere we go. Help us to be life-giving, life-affirming. Help us to value those around us so that there can be no argument against our intention. We're not manipulators. We're not men-pleasers. We're just reflecting the nature of our giver. Proving that we are new in Him. So help us, Lord, figure out what that looks like so that we can speak with your power and your authority in a broken world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.